0: thank you very much for this kind and thorough <laughs> introduction. I'm always happy to hear what you know who I am to have other people tell me. <laughs> um, I will, I, I, it's a long talk, so don't hesitate to interrupt me. I think, you know, we will get sleepy and tired after a while, and I've heard that 20 minutes of listening is actually enough for everybody, so maybe, you know, if you feel after 20 minutes that you're falling asleep, just, um, you know, raise your hand and ask me a question. I'm sure you have questions, and um, I'm happy to, to answer those. Um, maybe a word about my... Uh, My research, my field of research, um, because I think um, this, these, uh, all of you don't, uh, you're not really familiar with American studies as a field. Um, American studies is usually part of English literatures at universities, um, but we actually have fairly little to do with that field. It's more like an, an, an administrative unit. American studies today is mostly a cultural studies field. Um, so um, we study literature, we study film, we study um, the environment, for example. So it's extremely broad, which is an advantage, I think, but it's also a problem because American studies scholars tend to be you know, all over the place. You find them in media studies, you find them in the environmental humanities, you find them in art history and in uh, literary history or literary theory and so on. Um, but I think what uh, what I like about the field is that we managed to bring together very different um, ideas and try to build new, um, yeah, new, I- new ideas, new images out of that. And my personal concern with the environmental humanities grew out of um, my work on um, the post-Civil War um, period in the United States. As you know, this was a war between the northern and the southern states, which was basically about Well, two things, the economy and slavery. Um, And after that war, um, parts or large parts of the country were entirely destroyed. And I looked at those early photographs from the 19th century that depicted the so-called march to the sea, which was when the Northern Army crossed through the southern states and basically destroyed everything that was around. Um, This was during the early history of photography also, which captured this, um, this situation and it actually took decades to kind of reconstruct um, also the the agriculture, but also the cities, of course, the towns in this area. And um, I got interested in, you know, I think because I've worked so much about humans and society and so on. I got interested in, you know, what uh, in, in the in the soil, in the earth, in the environment that surrounds them on these images. And I'm, um, yeah, I'm quite fascinated with that. And um, the wheat um, has also um, c- come to my mind. When I um, yeah saw this picture here which stems from eighteen sixty five which is the year when the Civil War ended, um, maybe you want to try and you know there's no punishment for that. What do you think? What, what 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 does that show? It's called a veteran veteran in a new field. What is the you know, what's the meaning of this painting here? Any guesses? Give it a try. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. And I mean what you see here is a veteran, so it's someone who's just returned from the battlefield and he has he has a new battlefield, you could say, you know, he's he's kind of um harvesting the um the wheat. And he still wears the uh, the union uniform, so the, he really still, um, you know, he's still in a way part of the past. But he's also working towards the future, and I think that is interesting in terms of the time construction of of the wheat. You know, where is it located? It seems to define the border maybe between the past and the present, which is, you know, one of the things that I wish to talk about. So this image, of course, captured me when I was thinking about, you know, what could I how could could I work with this notion of the environment? And there was also another um, novel from the early 20th century that I find very, very interesting, and that I'm also going to talk about, which is The Octopus by by Norris. I don't know if you know that work. It's one of the famous American novels of the naturalist period. Um, So I thought, okay, that there's something about the wheat in American culture that interests me. And now I'm taking you on this journey. through the wheat, <laughs> um, and let's see what, you know, wh- where this, this leads us to. So, first of all, th- my talk centers on a substance that is both omnipresent and also strangely invisible, I would say, the wheat. If you take a look out of a train window, you ignore its familiar presence. You see a brownish field stretching to the horizon and you, you basically you ignore it, at least I do. In a gallery, you might stop in front of a painting that shows a family in the foreground and a farm in the background, and what you do not see is the huge yellow patch of uh, paint that evokes that structure. And again, it's a wheat field. Yeah, I mean, Ever since I'm you know, into this wheat field business, I see wheat fields all over the place, especially in um, an art. So, the wheat is right before us, but we don't see it. As Leslie Head points out, it not even appears on most vegetation maps, although more than 216 million hectares of the planet's soil are covered with wheat. You may, of course, object, and rightly so. We may ignore the wheat fields, but happily greet the golden ears that appear virtually everywhere as a logo on most bakery windows, woven into decorative garlands at your neighbor's door or at your own door, held like a baby by healthy looking peasant girls on stained glass windows, and I'm sure, I hope that after this talk, you will discover wheat in Cottbus, and I'm looking forward to getting those pictures for my my work. (laughs) Um, So, the wheat then creates images of peace, of well-being, and also of community. Yet, besides the nostalgic object, there is also what I call the military grain. A recent article in the German weekly Die Zeit Illustrates what I mean, and I quote in German, my only German quote. Bear with me. Der Kampf um mehr Ertrag und gegen die Feinde auf dem Feld gehört seit je zum Alltag des Bauern. Ab jetzt werden die modernen Waffen stumpf. And it continues, you know, using this this really militaristic rhetoric. So the wheat, in other words, makes a lot of noise once it is activated by journalists, by graphic designers or by artists. You look at Winslow Winslow Homer's painting, veteran in a new field, and you note that the grain is of central importance here. The field is mentioned even in the title, not the wheat, unfortunately, but the the field, and your your eyes are directed um, towards it. We see that the soldier has barely escaped the trenches of the American Civil War, but he already turns his back to the past. He is now fighting his way into peace and prosperity. And this was the phase, actually, after this war when America was prospering. Um, and when a lot of um, you know, new immigrants entered enter the country and when industrialization took on speed and so on. So the, the phase after the Civil War is really a major phase of, of reconstructing the, the, the nation, both in terms of infrastructure and, um, yeah, and, and industry, but also in terms of um, the society, which grew, which became more diverse. Um, where at least theoretically African Americans had equal rights—a very theoretical. This was also the time of the Ku Klux Klan, um, when it was founded in 1866, um, I think. Um, but this is this is really—I f- think—it's an Im- immensely important um, time called Reconstruction. So, um, and and you see how that plays into this this image here. Um, So in line with much of Western art in general, Homer's wheat field signals the end of an era and the beginning of a new one. To sum up, the wheat becomes visible and very much so as a symbol and metaphor. It stands as a promise for God's reward, economic security and the moral superiority of political systems. Recently, I, um, a colleague of mine from the University of Augsburg sent me this collage which he created during a student excursion to Moscow. There was Matthias Schmidt. Um, it tells us a story about the wheat in the country in that country's religious and political history. and don't hesitate, as I said, to send me the Cottbus version of this collage. So, this then is the topic of my talk. I will analyze the role of the wheat in cultural history. More precisely, I will focus on the cultural work that is accomplished by American representations of that grain over a period of, roughly speaking, 150 years. And when I say the cultural work of representations of the wheat, I refer to a cultural studies approach to cultural ex- forms of cultural expressions. So, um, what this basically means is: um, you know, why do we have culture? Why do we have, why do we have movies and um, design and literature and so on? Because these forms of expressions add something to our lives or fulfill certain needs in our lives that cannot be um, fulfilled in in our everyday experience. So the dreams, the fears of a society, um, they are played out in these cultural forms of expression. So when I talk about the wheat today, I mainly talk about the way it has been used as a Um, as a cultural item, as something that um, fulfills particular desires in a society, in this case, in American society. So, my emphasis on the United States is, of course, also a consequence of my uh, academic expertise, but not only. Um, It has equally much to do with the role of the United States as the top export nation of wheat worldwide. Um, Most of all, however, the genesis of wheat as a cultural sign is particularly interesting in America, this nation that was built on the myths of prosperity and democracy, of personal happiness and a collective mission to save the world. How then has the wheat been used to negotiate and redefine the meaning of the changing meaning of a country that considers itself a site of continuous progress and democratic self invention? To answer this question or these questions, we need to consider the darker side of the grain as well its militaristic, imperialist dimensions. In order to assess the evolution of the wheat as a cultural marker, I will resort to the notion of sustainability, or more precisely, sustainable development, as it has been defined in the 1987 Brundtland Report, which was issued by a commission nominated by the United Nations. I prefer the term sustainable development because it emphasizes the future-oriented aims of the Brundtland Report. Created to secure the survival and health of future generations worldwide, the report is based on three criteria, none of which is superior to the other. Those criteria are ecological sustainability, social sustainability, and economical sustainability. There are are two principal ways of imagining the relationship between those three paradigms. One can either emphasize that each one of them is equally important, This is the dominant and widely accepted interpretation nowadays. nowadays. We see it maybe in the Lausitz as well, um, where job security and the creation of new jobs are equally important as the preservation of species and the environment. Maybe I'm wrong. (laughs) The other way to imagine um, sustainable development follows the so-called preference model. This concept emphasizes the interconnectivity of the three columns of sustainability and identifies priorities and their potential replacement. It stresses the ongoing work that must be invested in the balancing of the three factors. There is no functioning economy without a just and healthy society, And in order for that society to survive on the long run, it must continuously be adjusted to its ecological bases and resources who have an equal right of survival and development. This model then is the basis of the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organisations, FAO, recommendations for wheat farming. The status quo, however, couldn't be any different, or much different. In the American historical context, which is the focus of my talk, the economical component ranges way before all others. The social component has a strong patriotic tint. Um, And while there is an increasing awareness of the problematic relationship between the global wheat market and social justice issues, the ecological component remains vastly underrepresented. This, I argue, results from the invisibility of the wheat as extensive, land-intensive crop and its hyper-presence as a cultural reminder of American um, um, values. So what I'm basically saying is that the narrative of the wheat in the United States is so strong that that it has become very hard to look at it from a different angle than from the established angles that exist already, which are mainly economical. So, in the remains of this lecture, I will analyse the genesis of the wheat as American myth, to then determine its potential to include the ecological component as part of a future-oriented notion of sustainable development. And I'm sure you know, you, know, you know much more about sustainability than I do, but um, bear with me and um, we'll see how, you know, how we can discuss this in, uh, yeah, in a few minutes, quite a few minutes. So let me start with a few facts to document the changing role of the wheat over the past 100 years. According to the FAO, 75% of crop variety have disappeared during the past 100 years. Urbanization and the increasing consumption of available farmland, in German, Flächenschwund, have contributed to the the success story of the wheat with its bountiful harvests, corn and rice follow closely. Thus, whenever local bakeries and bread ads suggest a connection to local agriculture, and I'm sure you've seen those logos on on the bakery doors, um, we are always tricked into nostalgia. The wheat is a deeply economised resource, actually. It is continuously manipulated to fit new climatic zones and soil conditions. A lot of work goes into building resistances against harmful pathogens like the black rust fungus in German, Schwarzrost. Due to its adaptability and the effort that is invested in new breeds, in the name of fighting world hunger, the wheat has had a massive impact on the spatial order on a global scale. At the same time, wheat growers' privileging of short-term profits over long-term sustainable development has transformed local communities in unforeseen or unforeseeable ways. According to recent warnings by the FAO, large-scale agribusiness fails to fight global hunger, which continues to rise. Experts argue that the displacement of local crops through large-scale agribusiness is a major factor contributing to this alarming situation. The solution however does not consist in putting an end to wheat production of course. The problem is complex and needs to be addressed in both the local and the global on, on both the local and the global scale. According to analysts, several factors must be taken into consideration to explain why we fail to meet the ever-increasing global demand for food, fresh water and timber, to name just a few. On the one hand, there is climate change, population growth and the decrease of arable land. On the other hand, there is a massive ...disregard of local communities, those who are directly affected by s- large-scale mechanized agriculture are, large l- are rarely included in decision-making processes. The FAO takes all of this into consideration and recommends a sustainable and eco-friendly architecture, uh, uh, agriculture controlled by local communities. This then accords with the definition of sustainable development um, as it was formulated in the Brundtland Report. Now, such demands, of course, are not at all new. You have all heard about the dust bowl experience of the 1930s, and now I'm in the American context, right? So, prolonged drought periods, storms, and the inadequate farming methods of wheat-growing homesteaders and urban investors caused one of America's most severe refugee crises. It is estimated that more than 400,000 people, amongst them many children, fled from the area uh, uh, from the area, area to start all over and under often miserable conditions. Today, experts fear a repetition of the Dust Bowl disaster on a global scale, but their warnings are largely ignored, reminiscent, as one commentator puts it, of what happened in the 1930s when voices of dissent were subdued and early warnings were ridiculed. Why are we not learning from past les- lessons? And of course, you know, I've heard that in the Laos, it's, um, there are actually large-scale experiments also with um, s- sustainable um, agriculture. But when you look at this, you know, this is an experiment or this is a local thing. If you look at you know the, the wheat growing on a global scale, you don't you don't, don't see much of it. Um, So, why are we not learning from past lessons? A common sense response believes that it is our human nature that privileges individual economic well-being and high national export rates over what is considered community nostalgia and abstract environmentalist concerns. When we look more closely, however, there are now cracks in this established narrative. Public protest against big business agriculture can be observed all over the world. We are, in other words, experiencing both reactions simultaneously, support for and protest against large-scale wheat farming. As I will show, both responses originate in much earlier and particularly American narratives of community resistance and collective identity, at least you know, in the United States. So, and now I'm going to talk about, give you a few examples, and I'm going to follow a chronological order starting with the colonial period, that is, you know, when, when the United States was still a British colony until the 1980s. So my first example stems from the colonial period, and it emphasizes the role of wheat as the glue to create and maintain a sense of community that was grounded in a common European heritage, you know, because when you think of that time when European settlers came to the United States, they of course, you know, they were busy also defining who they actually were as, as a community. Um, also in their relationship to the population that was there, the Native American population. So, in the the 17th century, American settlers relied on British wheat imports to secure their survival. Growing wheat made long-term settlements possible in the first place, and the shared rituals celebrating the wheat harvest created that much sought for um, sense of community. Settlers who had relied heavily on Native American support to survive the first winters soon developed a sense of collective identity that was grounded on wheat. Growing wheat distinguished them from the corn-growing natives whose land they took in order to grow European wheat. So, uh, the wheat and the spatial organization that emerged from the form of agriculture related to it created relations of dominance and feelings of superiority that survive to this very day. Significantly, this felt superiority has a moral component as well. During the colonization of Latin America, Spanish clergy insisted that the Lord's Supper, the consecrated bread, could only be embodied in a wheat uh, host, since the wheat alone transmitted the purity of true Christianity. According to Senna Ellen, this further weakened the interest of indigenous populations in the colonizer's religion. Note that until today, the consumption of American wheat is associated with whiteness, while corn is connected with non-white populations. And this is a, a topic that I'm not going to expand on, just because it would take more time than I have, but um, you can see it, for example, in the advertisement campaign for Wonder Bread, um, which is a really interesting example. Okay, my second um, example um, moves to the early um, phase of American independence. I've just emphasized consumption since the production of wheat is traditionally associated with the exploitation of black labor. American slavery was an intrinsic part of the larger transatlantic trade, which also entailed the transport of crop from the colonies to Europe. And both ways, you know, first of all came from Europe to the the Americas and then, you know, changed, um, moved uh, the other way. When, in the mid-18th mid century, bad harvests led to famines in the old continent, on the old continent, it was American wheat, in particular, that proved extremely profitable for the colonists. Through the wheat trade, the colonists gained in economical power, and with independence, they sought to stabilize this power by planting more wheat. In 1790, Thomas Jefferson, one of the founding fathers, changed the crop on his huge plantation. He no longer grew tobacco, or only a little of that, but replaced it by sowing wheat. Just as during the colonial period, this went along with stabilizing racial hierarchies. Jefferson was a slaveholder, and he said something very interesting about what he believed was a natural connection between the wheat and the human races. According to this founding father, successful wheat farming depended on teamwork on a massive scale, and he compared that that type of human cooperation with a non-human model, the machine. Yet the application of such non-human qualities on African labor were of course incompatible with the ideals of the young nation. According to the Declaration of Independence, the individual pursuit of happiness was a democratic right. The wheat, in other words, helped transformed black humans into machines and thereby legitimized their exploitation as slave labor, or legitimized it further. Now, ironically, and this is my third example, the wheat became a central marker of American multiracial democracy. In the mid-19th century, it in fact helped create the idea of a political system that was entirely incompatible with the aristocratic values and militaristic traditions of the British. So, you know, when you have a cultural sign such as the wheat, it doesn't always stay the same, but it is, conti- it, it is a strong sign that continuously is adapted to changing circumstances. So after independence, the wheat then becomes a marker of difference, you know, with, you know, the, the American wheat marks America as a nation that is distinct from the British, um, which in this, f- you know, the, in the early 19th century was a felt necessity amongst um, these, the, the, yeah, the, the, the Americans the white Americans, so so historically the colonial wheat trade had been one of the main factors that had motivated British military opposition against American independence. It is hardly surprising then that one of the nation's most famous historical paintings Put a wheat field at the center of the nation's fight for national independence. And maybe you've seen this picture by the German immigrant um, Emanuel Leutzer, who is the most famous um, historical painter in the United States. He, um, he created this painting, Washington crossing the Delaware. Maybe you've seen that painting, but he's you know, he this is his theme: American um, nation building. So um, He finished this piece in 1852, importantly however, the painting refers to the year 1777, when the British lost the all deciding battle against the colonists. Mrs. Schuyler burning her wheat fields at the approach of the British, links the wheat to the world of war that I mentioned earlier. Unlike contemporary fears of losing the battle on a global market, However, the painting's function is, ideolo- is, is purely ideological. The weed embodies Americans' heroic self sacrifice in defense of democracy. At the center of the painting, we see Mrs. Schuyler looting a wheat field that belongs to her family. And c- I hope you can see it even if you sit there in the back. I'm going to describe it a little bit um, later. Um, so, we see her burning or looting the wheat field that belongs to her family. Sheila was actually a historical figure. She was married to one of the richest landowners in, uh, Brit- in, in colonial America during the Wars of Independence. According to legend, she burned down all the wheat fields that belonged to her family to interrupt the food supply for the approaching British army. Note that this painting was created during a period of national self-definition. The 1850s were largely defined by ongoing political political quarrels about the future of slavery and the female vote. Both of these topics are woven into Lloyd's celebration of the multiracial American family ideal, complete here with Doug. The picture expands the iconography of the French um, Revolution by adding children and African Americans to the idea of active female participation, patriotism. Exposed against the golden promise of a wheat field, Leutze juxtaposes this diverse and individualized family against the British, and anonymous mass of European soldiers. So while today, Ethnic pluralism is a common concept of American national identity. It was radical back then. Like many German immigrants of that era, Leutze was a fervent admirer of American democracy, and he was also an abolitionist. The son of a radical German Um, a Democrat, he was deeply disappointed about the failure of the German Revolution of um, of 1848 and juxtaposed the idea of a classless and radical democratic nation against an imaginary militaristic Europe. And I mentioned that just to emphasize this other connection here in American culture where you very often see a um, yeah, cross fertilization um, between Europe, in particular, and the United States. Ideas that travel back and forth and, uh, and, and um, influence uh, American views of, you know, their landscape, and vice versa. Um, so a, a, a famous example is actually um, the um, the cultivation of forests, um, which you know, where America took a lot of ideas from the German context, but. Um, I think uh, they, you know, then then they, they develop their own idea of forestry um, against the backdrop of of the, of the German um, concept. So it's it's very interesting to actually see how that um, how these these dynamics how they how they create new national narratives very often in opposition to each other. Um, so, um, from the vantage point of sustainability, the painting projects a collective readiness to defend a political vision by destroying the food supplies for present generations. So, there is, you know, there's this idea of a future, of a democratic future, but you know, what do you do if there's no food? It's kind of um, yeah, contradictory. The wheat field is almost to burst in flames. So, what, you, what is captured here is not the burning wheat field um you know that would be something entirely different it is a wheat field that is still there it still holds the promise and it's dramatically you know about to go up in flames so actually you know maybe for us now okay this is just a painting but back then it really was this this effort to to capture a dramatical moment of patriotic self-definition. So, excessively focused on this patriotic moment, the painting ignores the social, environmental, and even the economical consequences of a violent act. What is displayed here is the transformation of the wheat, that nourisher of nations into a powerful sign for larger-than-life patriotism. Okay, so um, I think I'm going to introduce a fourth example, and then maybe we can, ha- we can talk a little bit, and then I'll continue and show you something more up-to-date. Okay, so I'm still in the 19th century, or about to enter into the 20th century. So, as I hope to have shown so far, American cultural history has privileged the wheat as a marker of national independence, racial superiority and somewhat paradoxically as the glue that binds an ideal, classless, multiracial and gender-equal nation. A few decades later, however, the destructive force of the wheat, together with its machine-like qualities, gained prominence this negative dimension of uh, was not new as we have seen in the context of colonization slavery and independence the wheat had been had been used in these contexts to defend ideas and ideologies after slavery and with the end of the so-called frontier um, that is the westward expansion across the American continent. You know that in the beginning only the eastern parts of the United States, well it's now the United States, were settled by those European settlers, but then they pushed forward across the continent until they reached the Pacific. So all of that happened in the 19th century and of course that geographical shift has had a major impact on the agriculture um, of the day and also on how Americans define themselves as a people. Um, So, um, what I want to talk about now, then, is this phase after slavery and with the end of the so-called frontier. um, American wheat is freed from the ties that kept it under control. After slaves had been mis- had been replaced by giant machines, fields grew to the horizon, eventually exceeding the borders of the United States. In the literature of the day, the wheat becomes wary of its patriotic and community building functions. It takes on a life of its own and becomes America's number one neo-colonial player. In Frank Norris's um, uh, naturalist novel, The Octopus, uh, which is part of a trilogy of The Wheat that Norris never finished, but I'm only going to talk about The Octopus. In this novel, The Wheat embodies an excessively expansive, unregulated monopoly capitalism that eventually kills even those who created the monster in the first place, the ranchers, but also their enemy, the boss of the railroad company who takes away their land. And I like the cover here with the giant octopus, which of course is not the wheat, but the railroad which um, branches across the country and actually also is quite an interesting kind of factor, technological factor that um, robs the land from the people. Um, so the following passage describes how the wheat in Norris's novel refuses to feed America's starving population and pushes out of its genuine biological force across the Pacific so it no longer cares about America it's on its way to Asia okay that's now you got an idea of what how, how you know about the language of this novel but the wheat remained, untouched, unassailable, undefiled, that mighty world force, that nourisher of nations, wrapped in nir- nirvanic calm, indifferent to the human swarm, gigantic, resistless, moved onward in its appointed grooves, through the welter of blood at the irrigation ditch, so there had been violence you know, with amongst, between the ranchers and those railroad people. Um, through the sham charity and shallow philanthropy of famine relief committees, the great harvest of Los Muertos, which is this area, rolled like a flood from the Sierras to the Himalayas to feed thousands of starving scarecrows on the barren plains of India. Okay, a little bit of context. Um, So, um, the octopus attacks the pseudo-humanism and political obliv- oblivion of affluent urban elites. And that sounds fairly familiar to me. During a time of mass immigration and class riots, rich Americans enjoyed the thrills of the exotic that had become available to them as a consequence of the transpacific neocolonial adventures under the Roosevelt administration. So, um, in the early, in the late 19th and early 20th century. America joined the uh, um, the imperialistic um, colonizing um, forces in Europe, you know, they also wanted their piece of the colonial pie, so to speak, and they pushed into the Caribbean, South America, and also into the Pacific, and, um, you know, but this is the time when Hawaii became a state of, um, or became part of the United States, Guam also, all of this was part of the strategic um, s- repositioning of that nation, moving from, originally moving from the east, across the continent towards California, and then pushing onward. Um, So cultural studies theorists have said, you know, this is actually a continuation of the frontier, and accompanied by this idea of a mission, of um, of a religious mission also. Anyways, I'm moving elsewhere. (laughs) Um, So so this is an attack against those elites. that um, discuss yoga and haiku poetry in this novel, while ignoring the poverty at their doorstep. In their cosmopolitan universe, feeding the starving scarecrows in India is more rewarding than giving to the American poor or changing their own elite lifestyle that is the cause of it all. If we compare that uh, this year to the Bruntland Report, we recognize a lack of social sustainability. According to the octopus, rural communities are weakened while those who merely pass through and finance those communities over a short period of time eventually gain control without caring about future generations. That is this, the, the image of this railroad company. They're not interested in the in the land, they're not interested in the communities. They're only interested in building the railroad to bring the, the wheat to the port of San Francisco to then ship it to other countries where you know people who are hungry people can be fed but where the ones um, that you know actually part of the nation or you know Americans don't get anything. Um, So what is even more interesting is that these business elites have created an agriculture that, like Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, follows its own rules and semi-natural drives. Altered through genetic manipulation and and industrialized agriculture, the wheat has moved beyond its status as a plant. It is no longer a part of the functioning interaction between humans and non-humans, but a brutal force that eventually challenges the unscrupulous boss of the railroad company in line with a historical late 19th century political scandal this proto-capitalist is a cheat who robs the wheat ranchers to maximize his personal gain in the wheat trade In the end, however, he too falls victim to his greed, but also to the characteristic mercilessness of the grain when he stumbles on the rim of a wheat silo and drowns in an ocean of grain. Now, in The Octopus, the Darwinian logic of the survival of the fittest is expanded to include a non-human actor. Yet, unlike a storm that at that time was not associated with human impact, the wheat's brutality is fundamentally man-made. (laughs) <laughs> it has is abolished its status as a plant, confirming what Leslie Head has written about cultivated crop. And I quote, In becoming de- de- uh, domesticated, wheat has, for many geographers, crossed from nature into culture and surrendered its status as a plant. So basically, you know, kind of repeating what I just said. In the octopus, manipulating nature creates human risk. Fueled by the natural power of the California climate and fertile soil, the wheat redefines its relationship to its creator, that is, the human creator, not God, it's a human creator. A brainchild of human greed, the wheat displays the same ignorance, (coughs) lack of solidarity and unlimited desire for expansion, like his master. According to early 20 to to, an, to the early 20th century mindset, the wheat uh, was the antichrist. In our age, it is the incarnation of unsustainability. It, con- it destroys not only local communities but also the nation's economy and landscape. In some narratives, okay, I have two more examples. So I'm going to talk now about the dust bowl and then about a particular piece of art that I like very much, so, <laughs> and there, there are more, of course. So, um, this narrative of the wheat, Norris's octopus narrative, um, this idea of the wheat as a brute force, was updated in, 19, in the 1930s during the so-called dust bowel um, catastrophe. We remember this experience because it has been archived, for example, in photographs um, by people like Dorothea Lange, maybe she's also of German descent, but also a couple of others, um, whom, and you see two examples here. Um, These photographs say a lot about the extent of human suffering, but little about the reasons that led to the exodus of more than 400,000 people from the Great Plains region. So let me tell you a short version of what led up to the Dust Bowl disaster. In the early 20th century, the United States government reacted to mass immigration and urban overpopulation by giving land to thousands of settlers. They had this option. Most of these so-called homesteaders had no farming existence when they moved to to the Great Plains, but they welcomed the new farming technology that was advertised to them after the First World War. The wartime tank industry sold them plows that dug deep into the fertile topsoil, removing the grassland that stabilized the surface and stored the water in this dry region. The farmers then planted wheat and also corn. In the beginning, harvests were gigantic and so was the profit. But very soon, global wheat prices declined and those who remained on their farms planted more than what the soil could tolerate. Fertilizer was used excessively while the crop rotation was ignored. This was the beginning of a gigantic monoculture. Then came the Great Depression, followed by the 1934 drought and heavy sandstorms. The Great Plains had, of course, experienced periods of extreme weather before, but since the grassland had been destroyed by those modern ploughs, together with a deep layer of the mother soil, there was nothing there to stop erosion. Not only was the nation's breadbasket destroyed, but the communities were directly affected as a social um, combination or social um, um, organisms. In 1939, John Steinbeck published The Grapes of Wrath, which is a monument in novel form for those who were driven off their land during this era. Has anybody read that novel, The Grapes of Wrath, Früchte des Zorns, As Robin Cake rightfully argues, one of the main arguments of that novel is that the dust bowl was largely man-made, a logical consequence that followed from individual and collective failure and the naïve belief in the God-given abundance of the North American continent. According to Warren French, the central message of the grapes of wrath implies a change of the American mind, away from mythical individualism and self-centeredness, and a return to community and an economy built on moral values, and not on profit alone. And again, that sounds familiar to me. I mean, we have, these discourses are very much alive right now, also under the Trump administration. Although, you know, someone like um, Steinbeck was a leftist. Again, the three columns of sustainability prove useful here. The values he talks about rely on a balanced relationship between the economy, society and ecology. I would add that once more the emphasis lies also very much on the local, on communities that have a long lasting and spiritual relationship to their home soil. I think the spiritual part is also important. After all, one of the main problems defined by Steinbeck are investors. That is, people who pass through, move on as soon as profits dwindle. Again, this is something we've seen earlier in the uh, the octopus. You know, again, it's the people passing through, they are the problem. It's not the people who work the land. Um, So, Um, These are people who lack a love of the land, who ignore the natural conditions and traditional methods, and who create create unhealthy economical competition on the local level, conditions that lead to alienation and ultimately a physical escape from the region. This analysis is very much in line with the Roosevelt administration this administration soon realized that sustainable development was key to solving the situation so this was after the uh, the black friday after the the great, you know during the great depression a time of a more general massive um, crisis um, world crisis um of economical crisis so um, but the this um, this roosevelt administration did something very interesting especially in the context of American politics, something rather unusual. So in a first step, they recruited hundreds of people who helped grow hedges and trees to protect the huge fields from storms, which is something I've heard is also happening in the Lausitz. The protection of species or the conservation of the landscape were not considered. Those measures aimed at the economic and social survival of the region. Interestingly, however, Roosevelt understood that social sustainability was not only dependent on employment rates. Under his government, the dust bowl became meaningful for the rejuvenation of the national spirit. So, something that seems entirely meaningless. And, uh, you know, this destruction, this erosion, that has no meaning, but it became meaningful through the cultural measures that he um, undertook. So, um, one of the main aims of Roosevelt's New Deal policy was the strengthening of regional and rural identities. His government financed the Introduce America to Americans campaign, which enabled photographers like Dorothea Lange and others to create thousands of photographs that memorialized the human catastrophe of the mid and late 1930s as work reaches beyond the golden shine of 1920s wheat fields. They show what happens when we ignore the social and ecological aspects of sustainability. Um, depending on what we concentrate on in these images, um, we see the huge dry fields where once wheat was harvested. In this landscape, the wheat becomes vulnerable again, as vulnerable as the rusty agricultural machinery, the temporary lodgings of the the rural poor. In these pictures, the relationship between humans and their environment is out of sync. It is the children in particular, um, you see some of them, uh, lots of these pictures, Um, the children in particular, whose future turns, literally, to dust. These images seem authentic and they bear witness to national catastrophe. Most of all, however, they convey a more general fear of human hubris and nature's revenge. This combination makes these dust bowl photos iconographic according to the definition of semiotician Charles Sanders Peirce, truthful, indexical and symbolic. The dust bowl photos have since have since served to remind the nation of its worst nightmare so what photographs do unlike um, paintings is they they prove that someone was there to took the, po- the photo Th- that makes them more uh, more truthful We know that you know with <laughs> I see you know Today, that is not at all true. And even back then, there was a lot of manipulation. But you know, this is the idea of photography. This idea of you know someone being witness of um, creating an archive of the past and so on. And also, in some cases, creating memories that are larger than the exe- than the um, the event itself. And those pictures then are also called, according to the theory that I mentioned uh, just mentioned, iconographic. So. Um, like, um, you know, the planting of the flag at, at um, Hiroshima, uh, of, of, uh, what is it? Um, Hiroshima? No. Um, or or, uh, or you, the, the picture of the soldier who died in the American Civil War, the Dacabra photo, for example, or the Buchenwald photographs, they're p- pictures that we are all familiar with, which, of course, talk about particular historical event, but they have become you know, larger than that. They say something about humanity. And these pictures are certainly, uh, they also serve this purpose, especially one on the right. Maybe you've seen that before. It's very, very well known. Um, So all of the examples that I have mentioned so far betray an unbalanced relationship amongst the three aspects mentioned in the Brundtland report. The reasons and and consequences of this neglect are manifold. A local agriculture that does not live up to international demands. Poverty that hinders local populations from investing in their future. Global population growth and world hunger that evoke a network of dependencies. Devastated deserted landscapes with low biodiversity diversity, inefficient energy supply, inadequate technology and the fatal developments in rural areas where there is no public transport together with uncontrolled urbanization and internationalization or globalization. As we have seen so far, most cultural interventions focus on the flawed relationship between economic and social concerns. It was only with the Dust Bowl that the ecological component became a factor. Yet, that f- it figured more prominently. Uh, what figured more prominently was still the human suffering. This should not change considerably in, until the 1980s, um, which, is not a, which were not only the decade of the Brantley Report, but also the decade when a huge wheat field was planted in Manhattan, New York. There it was, the wheat and it was visible, indeed, and here it is. Okay, now this is the last art project that I want to talk about. Wheatfield, A Confrontation is a piece of land art created by the American-Hungarian artist Agnes Dennis. Like the American writers and artists before her, she too relied on the wheat to discuss what it means to be an American to live and prosper in a country based on wheat and on stories about the wheat. Her project, however, is designed to leave the American continent. Like Norris's The Octopus, Dines examines the global effects of a, glo- of a local crop. First created in, eight, in 1982, *Wheatfield: A Confrontation receives a lot of attention right now in, in, you know, in, in recent articles the problems tackled by this artwork have become an urgent global concern. Um, And, you know, guess why this is called a confrontation, just by looking at this image here, why is it called a confrontation, what is is being confronted here, or opposed? Hmm? Any guesses? It's easy, come on, it's it's too easy a question. Okay. You you see the city and you see the field. I mean this is quite massive, okay? All right, but I will explain it in a second. So this is what uh, Dennis, um, how she describes her project. Early in the morning, on the 1st of May, 1982, we began to plant a two-acre wheat field in lower Manhattan, two blocks from Wall Street and the World Trade Center facing the Statue of Liberty. So mm, some interesting symbols are mentioned here as well. Um, Wall Street, World Trade Center, Statue of Liberty. The planting consisted of digging 285 furrows by hand, clearing off rocks and garbage, mm-hmm. just listen to what's underneath, then placing the seed by hand and covering the furrows. Each furrow took two to three hours. Okay. So the field was then treated with pesticides and fertilizers until it was harvested, so very conventional way of, you know, going about this um, field, Um, and this was done in August of 1982 by that group of volunteers, so the inclusion then of people um, who live in the city. The grain then travelled to 28 countries where the wheat was exhibited in in an exhibition titled The International Art Show for the End of World Hunger. It was then distributed amongst the visitors of that art show, who then ideally would sow it close to their homes. So that's what I mean with you know this weed also then travels away from the United States. One of the main aspects of wheat fielder confrontation is educational. Many of the economical, social, and ecological issues I've mentioned could be experienced first hand posed against the Manhattan skyline, and w- these are just, you know, glimpses into different, um, par- different um, steps in, the pro- in, in, in this project, and also different perspectives, um, or different backgrounds and foregrounds. So, um, posed against the Manhattan skyline, the wheat, land, the wheat field was highly visible, quite contrary to most wheat fields. When it was eventually replaced by new office buildings, New Yorkers witnessed what planners mean when they refer to the, displacement of, to, to the displacement of rural production through urbanization. City dwellers' dependence on the global wheat trade is as much a topic here as the transformation of cereal plants into a commodity. Bordering on Wall Street, Dennis Wheatfield highlighted the alarming conflation between farm work, administrative businesses and the world market. Most of all, however, Wheatfield, a confrontation, seeks to alter the capitalized relationship between humans and their favorite crop, or one of their favorite crops, and questions the established divide between the rural and the urban. Those who saw the wheat field were encouraged to think about humanity's contradictory ways of approaching the wheat and different, its different ways of experiencing the various stages of its production. On the one hand, there was the farm work. Um, some of it was even done by hand to establish a sense of immediacy and connection. But most of it was based on use of machines. And there was also the open-plan offices right behind the wheat field. In those offices, people predict the global price of wheat based on at least partly global hunger. And then there was that other hunger, the hunger for real estate that in the end would put an end to the wheat field project. First of all, however, there was the soil which was thoroughly polluted when Dines started, started the project. A lot of it had to be replaced or freed from contem- contaminants to enable the planting in the first place. So it was basically a huge garbage um, field. We feel the confrontation challenges human priorities but it also forces us to question our readiness to accept the massive contradictions that in here in contemporary agriculture let me once more quote Agnes Dinas The wheat field, she says, is about our ability to see so much and understand so little, to have achieved technological miracles while remaining emotionally unstable, our great advances, desirable, even necessary for survival, that have interfered with evolution and the world's ecosystems, our alienation in togetherness, our illusion of freedom and the inescapability of the system or, for that matter, the individual human dilemma, struggle, and pride, versus the whole human predicament. Um, I could continue for another five minutes or so, or we could start a discussion, a little bit. Come to an end? Okay, so like a lot of interesting art, Dennis' confrontation forces us to acknowledge the moral incompatibility and hubris of our global economy. Set against the New York skyline and planted on a piece of property worth 4.5 billion dollars, the wheat field seems strangely nostalgic. And although it very much depends on pesticides and fertilizers and machines, it is returned to the status of a plant, partly because it needs natural time to develop. Even genetically manipulated crop relies on natural time here, and thereby contradicts the speed and financial obsession that define the modern uh, metropolis. There was a sense of calm and vastness, expanse, about the Manhattan wheat field that stood in contrast to the constant movement and sense of progress in the skyscraper valleys, valleys um, nearby. There was a symbolical dimension too when the nourish of nations was linked to poison as it was planted, as I said, on a polluted landfill. Wheat field of confrontation does not only show these uncanny, unbearable contrasts, but it lets visitors experience them through active participation in the wheat growing process. There is no monstrous wheat here, but monstrous contradictions that can only be solved by what Dennis calls her culture versus grassroots approach. It is a concept that urges a new beginning where the mistakes of the past are fully recognized and that, you know, kind of links this, this idea of the weed that's you know, always linked to past and the a, and a, and a future. Quite interesting, I think. Um, so this approach then insists that we dig deep into the layers that make our present in order to understand what it means that even a piece of real estate in New York City used to be farmland or hunting grounds or a swamp. Dines wants us to understand the deep connection between the Statue of Liberty that emerges or emerged from right behind that wheat field and the World Trade Center still standing at that point on the one hand and the wheat field on the other. Dines hopes that such confrontations help us construct a healthier relationship, relationship is an important term um, in her interviews, Um, A healthier relationship between humans and the land, the economy and its commodities, the local and the global, between human culture and our non-human environment. Her art then anticipates the demands of the Brundtland Report, which was formulated later, also in the 80s, but um, seven years after this artwork. We are far removed from accomplishing that goal, of course. The global race for increasing national export race has gained speed and new participants. Recently, China has joined the global air competition um, and actually the United States um, and also Canada, I think, um, are you know, continuously in a race with, with Russia. Laboratories worldwide are currently experimenting with genetically modified wheat cultures to expand the production to areas that until till recently were deemed unsuitable for wheat farming. Yet art too can travel, and it often adapts surprisingly well to new circumstances. Dinesi's wheat field confrontation is still alive and thriving. It it was last seen in the center of Milan, in northern Italy, as part of the 2015 Expo Milano. This time, the ecological dimension was emphasized like never before and 5,000 volunteers fully recognised the needs of the local community and renounced the use of pesticides or herbicides or fertilisers. And they also actively acknowledged that biodiversity and agriculture must go hand in hand. The Milan wheat field included a vegetable garden with an orchard of 4,000 square metres. Thank you for travelling with me. (laughs)